This episode is a conversation between myself and Jack Cerrone, who, like me, got started in quantum computing in high school. We got to talk about a lot of things surrounding getting started with quantum computing, Jack's interest, and how that plays into some of the penny lane code that he's worked on. Jack is super knowledgeable and easy to talk to, so I hope you enjoy this chat we had. Take it away, me from the past. Okay, welcome to this episode of Quantum Computing Now. Uh, today I have with me Jack Cerrone, who is a quantum computing enthusiast and self-described lowly intern. Jack, thanks for coming on the podcast. <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for having me. Um, it's good to be here, Ethan. Thanks. Yeah, awesome. So I'm. I, I got to say, like before we dive into questions, I'm. I'm kind of a fan because I, th- I think we've got very similar uh, backgrounds and interests. You don't really have like a traditional background in quantum computing. You just sort of dived right in. Why don't you go ahead and tell us about that? Yeah, sure. Um, so I guess it was back in high school that I kind of got interested in the field of quantum computing. Um, um, it seemed really interesting because it combined like a lot of the things like the fields, you know, of scientific inquiry that I found interesting, you know, mathematics, physics, computers, coding, all that kind of stuff. Um, and I just kind of like building things and in high school. I just thought, you know, why not try to get into this? Um, and I also had like kind of like guidance from like a lot of people too. Like I was like in this tech kind of mentorship program and, you know, people were kind of like supporting me and like guiding me to like go into quantum computing. So I was like, all right, um, you know, I'll check this out. It seems pretty cool. Um, and I just kind of like started doing, you know, quantum computing side projects in high school. Like I try to learn like, you know, these quantum computing simulation libraries, like a lot of which are in Python, like, you know, Penny Lane and Circ and Strawberry Fields and Qiskit, um, you know, a bunch of other ones that I'm forgetting. Um, <laughs> but yeah, basically what I did was I just would, you know, try to read papers or like read kind of, or try to understand like quantum algorithms and then just try to like simulate them using these, um, I guess, toolkits, these Python toolkits. And then I, you know, write about them. I'd like post blog posts and that was just kind of what I enjoyed doing. And that's how I got into the field. So kind of unconventional, um, but I guess it worked for me. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Yeah. Yeah. So um, you said that you were you were encouraged to look at quantum computing by other people. Was it sort of like, were you reluctant? Like, oh man, do I have to like look into this? Or was it like, that sounds super interesting. Let me let me dive in. Oh no, it sounded super interesting. Like I definitely, like I said, you know, it kind of combined all the things that I really found interesting at the time. Um, so yeah, no, there was definitely no hesitancy. Um, I, I kind of it's funny, like I, um, when I got started in quantum computing, um, I was looking into, I took, I guess, like a more conventional approach when I started looking into the field itself. Like I was looking at kind of the, um, the sort of far term quantum algorithms, like, you know, Deutsche, Joe's algorithm and, um, Shor's algorithm, like Grover's algorithm, all that kind of stuff. Um, I didn't get into like, you know, quantum machine learning, um, and like variational quantum algorithms until a while after that. Um, so some of my first kind of, I guess, like quantum computing side projects were, um, like simulating Deutsch's algorithm using CERC or something. And, you know, I would, I tried doing that. And honestly, a lot of these side projects were spectacular failures. Like I spent, I spent so much time trying to, you know, debug this code. I spent like (laughs) hours and hours on quantum computing stack exchange. And like, I have to shout out the people on quantum computing stack exchange because they were so helpful. Um, in my, in my early quantum computing side project, projecting days, um, 
Like, like for instance, somebody like Craig Gidney um, over at Google, he was like one of the lead developers of Cirque. Um, he was very helpful because um, that used to be my tool of choice, I guess, Cirque. Um, so the quantum computing community honestly just allowed me to do all of this really amazing stuff and they were all very helpful. Um, so I, I guess the reason that I continued in quantum computing was in large part due to the fact the community was so great from the beginning. Yeah, that's super cool. And uh, you've you had this help from the community, and I'm wondering, like, other people looking into getting into this community might be thinking, well, maybe I should I should go down that same path of just trying stuff mm -hmm. out and diving into it. Would you recommend it to to other people, or say, no, do the traditional thing, go to school, get your master's, and then get into quantum computing? I mean, yeah, it's difficult for me to say. I mean, I like. This this path seemed to have worked pretty well for me, I guess. Um, like I said, you know, I'm still a lowly intern, um, but um, you know, I've had the opportunity to do some interesting things um, because of you know quantum computing side projecting, and I really like, um, I guess, project based learning. I just really enjoy it. Like I I like building things. I like getting my hands dirty. Um, I like just like jumping into you know papers and results and just trying to like fully understand them in the process of trying to build them. Um, and I personally really enjoy that, but I can't really comment on, you know, um, I guess the value of like, you know, formal education because I am just starting my formal education. I just finished my first year of undergrad. Um, so it's, uh, it's difficult for me to say, uh, which is better because I only kind of am familiar with one side of the equation. Um, but as I, you know, as I, go through my undergraduate degree. Hopefully they don't, they don't, they don't fail me out of U of T. Hopefully I'll get more data points and I'll be able to actually, you know, figure out, okay, you know, what is the best path? Um, but, you know, right now I'm really enjoying my formal education. And I think that kind of a mix of the two um, right now, at least is really beneficial. Yeah. Yeah. Got to keep us updated as you go through it. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> Totally. And uh, so yeah. you you started out with, um, like you said, Cirque, so more on the, the algorithms uh, side. But is that what you're most interested in? Or was that just sort of the, you know, the, you know IBM's got this quantum computer on the cloud, you can play around with it now, so you might as well? Or are you more interested in hardware, software, mix of both? Yeah, um, I'm, I'm definitely interested in the software side more so right now. And that's kind of what I have experience in. I mean, Quantum hardware sounds so fascinating and, you know, mad props to all of the people who are, you know, building these actual quantum computers. Like that seems really, really hard. Um, and it probably requires some really advanced physics, um, which I cannot begin to comprehend yet <laughs> um, at this point in my education. Um, and it seems very interesting, like I said, but I, I don't have enough knowledge in it yet really to, I guess, say that, oh yeah, this is what I'm kind of, this is what I'm really interested in. Um, my kind of, I guess, area of knowledge is more in um, quantum software and quantum algorithms right now. And, and even, even there, you know, my knowledge is so tiny compared to, you know, what a lot of my colleagues um, and, you know, what a lot of, I guess, my mentors know. Um, so I hesitate to even call it like my area of expertise, you know, quote unquote. Um, but yeah, I'm definitely more interested in the software side of things, uh, right now. Um, I'm really interested, I'm really interested in like, um, quantum machine learning, um, variational quantum algorithms, um, 
because I really like the fact that it's possible that quantum computers might have near-term applications for, you know, interesting and difficult problems like, you know, optimization and quantum chemistry and things like that. Um, and I also just really like the idea of um, being able to simulate quantum systems using like a programmable device. Like, you know, I guess, you know, Richard Feynman was like the first person to kind of, you know, propose the idea of a quantum computer. And I guess his original vision, at least to my understanding, was that he wanted a device that could be programmed to simulate like nature, right? Like in physics. Um, and I think that's kind of what quantum computers do at their root, right? They can be used to simulate quantum mechanical systems, um, whether that be, you know, through variation algorithms, like finding, you know, the ground state of some molecule, um, whether you're doing like quantum machine learning on like some set of, you know, quantum related data. Um, it all comes back to like simulating quantum systems with quantum computers. Um, and I think that's what I find the most interesting out of, you know, everything that kind of falls under the quantum computing umbrella is the fact that they can be used to like simulate quantum systems and that they're programmable, right? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it's interesting you mentioned Feynman, like going all the way back to just mm -hmm. thinking about simulating quantum effects using quantum devices. Mm -hmm. And now we've got like all these other use cases. I don't know, from what I've seen, it seems like the the umbrella of what is quantum computing and quantum tech has been growing year over year. I don't mm -hmm. know, maybe have you seen anything like that? Absolutely. Um, like the industry, you know, or like, I guess even research is, you know, it, it's going at like a mile a minute right now. Like a lot of people are really interested in quantum computing and for good reason. Um, I think that over time, you know, we're going to see more applications, hopefully, um, of quantum devices to different problems. Specifically, I think, like, like I said, you know, quantum mechanical problems, like, you know, simulating quantum systems. Um, and I really hope that those will be the kind of things that we see, you know, kind of being developed in the near future. Um, let's see what else. Um, obviously, you know, like the actual hardware itself, like there are crazy advances going on there and, you know, I guess, the, I guess the umbrella of hardware is getting larger too. You know, you have people working on photonic devices, you have people working on these superconducting devices. Um, I guess you can have like D-Wave working on their annealer. Um, you know, you have like trapped ions over at ion Q, like so many different things, right? And um, I honestly don't know how many of these companies were around like 10 years ago. Um, I haven't really thought about that or looked into that, but probably not nearly as many. Um, so yeah, like I said, you know, it's like, like you said, actually, it's growing it's it's like the umbrella is growing and it's fantastic it's fantastic yeah yeah um it's really interesting that you mentioned like even the the increases in what we're able to do with the the hardware itself mm -hmm. um like even just ignoring all of the use cases it seems it reminds me almost like uh like a like the space race you know yeah where we we sent someone to the moon and that was that was super cool, but the, there wasn't much there wasn't much science there. There weren't many use cases of sending someone to mm -hmm. the moon. But the fact that we were able to do that was so like insane and so cool. And yeah. on the smaller scale, like actually on a quantum scale, the fact that we're able to control these tiny tiny things just blows my mind every time. Oh, you're absolutely right. Um, like building a quantum computer for the sake of building a quantum computer. I think is really cool too. Like the fact that, you know, you can have like, you know, like quantum supremacy experiments and things like that, like just for the, just because we can do them, right? Like we want to show that quantum computers have some kind of leg up over their classical counterparts, even though there's actually no 
application of like real quantum devices yet, the fact that we're even able to demonstrate that they are in fact superior, um, I just, it blows my mind. I think it's amazing. Um, and I think it's, it's just, it just shows, you know, like how far we've come, right? Like we went from, you know, Feynman, like writing down this idea of a quantum computer, like way back, you know, in the 20th century or the late 20th century, I guess, to, you know, or the mid 20th century, I don't know, um, to, you know, actually having these programmable devices. And even though they're kind of, I guess, primitive right now, um, I'm really confident that they're going to get a lot better in the near future. Yeah, totally. Um, and I, I wanted to jump back to something else you were talking about, mm -hmm. which was you started with Cirque, um, mm -hmm, but now yeah. you're working with uh, Xanadu, and you're working yeah. on on PennyLane actually, that's right. um, which is which is quantum machine learning, uh, mm -hmm. and that's something you're interested in. So maybe like I don't know what's what is a main advantage of uh, PennyLane over other quantum machine learning tools? Right. Right. Um... So I, I personally love Penny Lane. I think that the design that's gone into Penny Lane is just very, very elegant. And I'm not just saying that because like I work at Xanadu. <laughs> um, well, like the thing is, is that working on Penny Lane has kind of given me sort of, I guess like a, a, a more, I guess, intimate look into how it actually works like under the hood. Um, and I haven't actually gotten that kind of viewpoint when it comes to a lot of these other um, quantum computing simulation libraries. And from what I've seen, you know, just from, you know, my kind of firsthand experience, um, the way that Penny Lane is built is just very elegant, in my opinion. Um, I really, I really just like the way that everything is laid out. Um, like, you know, for instance, in Penny Lane, like we have, you know, the, the you have this notion of like a Q node, right, which is basically like a quantum computational node, which basically stores like a tape of, you know, quantum related operations. And these tapes can be executed on different devices and they can be passed back and the results can be, um, you know, the results can be outputted and analyzed in different ways. Um, I really like the fact that um, Penny Lane is able to, you know, work with so many different simulators. I really like that, like, you know, so many different plugins and it's so modular, um, you know, it works with, you know, Kiskit, like Rigetti, works with IronQ, works with AQT, like um, Honeywell, all these different, um, all these different frameworks, which I, I really like. And I think another benefit to Penny Lane too is just the, um, it's kind of like the, um, the materials that kind of surround the code, like all of the tutorials and the documentation, I found it to be really, really nice. Even before I worked at Xanadu, um, I thought that, you know, wow, like a lot of care has gone into these tutorials to make sure that, you know, people really understand the software Like these, these the documentation is very clean and, you know, it's very illuminating. So that's, that's one of the things that I think Penny Lane does very, very well as well. And it's what made me kind of really, I guess, fall in love with the software, um, even before I was working at Xanadu. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's something that I noted, um, at least I, I hope I noted oh, in my... Um, Oh. Sorry, I lost audio here for a second. <laughs> okay, can you hear me now? Um, yeah. Technical difficulties, folks. We'll be right back. Hey, we are coming back from te technical difficulties now. Um, <laughs> I could totally hear Jack, but he couldn't hear me. Uh, one MacBook reboot later, and we're back in the game. <laughs> <laughs> exactly, yeah. Like, like I was saying, you know, of course, my computer chooses now to malfunction. Um, yep. Uh, opportune timing. Thanks, Matt. Yep. 
<laughs> uh, anything that can happen will happen, right? Absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so yeah, um, you had just been talking about what you like so much about Penny Lane. Um, and one of the things mm. that you mentioned was the, the documentation and all of the things surrounding it. Um, right. And I, I actually, I brought up two questions in my mind. Um, the first question is uh, sort of a little bit of backstory to the question. I really like Python, but not because I actually like the language, but because I like all of the tools surrounding Python. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm assuming that's not what you're saying here with uh, Penny Lane. Like you actually, you like the the tool itself as well. Oh, absolutely. I, I love the tool itself. Like I said, I, I really, I really love the Penny Lane syntax. I really love um, just the way that everything's built out, like logically, you know, like, like, you know, when you're creating like a quantum circuit in Penny Lane, like, like I was saying before, um, you create essentially this Q node, um, which basically just looks kind of like a Python function that's decorated with this decorator. Um, and you define like a device on which you want to simulate your quantum program. Um, and then um, you basically can call a bunch of quantum operations within your kind of Q node quantum circuit function. Um, and you can return some kind of, um, I guess, like, you, you can return some kind of measurement process that corresponds to, you know, calculating like a, an expectation value or like a standard deviation. Um, and then basically um, you can essentially just bundle all of this stuff together. You can execute, um, I guess, your quantum circuit on the device um, and all is, all is good and nice. Um, and this is kind of, I guess, the same for other quantum programming languages, like they're, they're kind of have the same fundamental building blocks. Um, but I just really like the, the way that Penny Lane's built, like laid out in terms of syntax, um, like the way that all of this, like, like what I just described, the way that everything is actually bundled together just looks very nice and it's very intuitive. Um, and then I also just really like all of the other stuff that's built um, within Penny Lane that just makes everything easier. Um, for instance, um, like the Penny Lane templates, which are basically um, kind of, I guess, pre-built quantum circuits, um, which you can like feed parameters into, which can be used for like a multitude of different tasks, like building, you know, quantum neural networks, um, variational quantum circuits, things like that. You know, you have these templates that can be used for building like, um, you know, um, circuits for quantum chemistry simulations, um, all that kind of stuff. Um, and then, Another thing that I can kind of speak to as well, another kind of feature in Penny Lane, um, this, this is something that I can speak to um, better, I guess, because I, I worked on it, um, and that's Penny Lane's QAOA functionality, um, which I kind of helped build, um, and I don't want to like promote my own work um, or anything, um, but I think that um, the QAOA functionality is, is really nice too. It's, it's a very nice addition to Penny Lane, and it just makes... Um, building um, QAOA workflows um, intuitive and nice. Um, and I could go on about this stuff forever. Like there's so many different things. There's like the whole QChem um, side of things, which is basically um, Penny Lane's like quantum chemistry sort of functionality. Um, there's a ton of features in there that can be used to simulate quantum chemistry um, related circuits. Um, you know, you have like the mixed state simulator, so you can, you know, um, simulate quantum devices, um, that have noise introduced into them. Um, like there, 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 there are so many different things that I could talk about. Um, but yeah, I think all of this stuff when it comes together just makes Penny Lane really, really amazing. 
Yeah, super cool. And a, a lot of this goes back to what you were talking about earlier, I think, which is the, the modularity of Penny Lane is one Absolutely. of the main things that people like. Absolutely. Yeah, it's, um, it's very easy to build stuff on top of Penny Lane. Um, like I said, you know, you can, we have all these different plugins that can be used with Penny Lane. Like you can, you can create, you know, Penny Lane circuits. You can use like the Penny Lane syntax um, to create quantum circuits. And then you can run them on all of these different devices, um, which is fantastic. I really like, yeah. and it's, it's really, it's, it's really, um, it's really nice from like a parallel parallelization perspective as well. Um, because, you know, it, let, let's say that you have, you know, some kind of network of, I guess, quantum, um, quantum circuits, I guess. And you can almost imagine like having, you know, like, okay, like I have like, you know, a quantum subroutine over here. I have another quantum subroutine over here. I have a classical subroutine over here. I have a classical subroutine over here. And they all kind of connect together. Um, and you can kind of imagine um, each of these kind of different computational nodes um, corresponding to like some kind of computation that's being performed. And the idea is kind of that you should be able to take all of these different computations that are being performed and split them up between different devices. So maybe you can, you know, take one kind of computation, you can run it like on, you know, the IonQ device, and you can take another kind of computation running on like the IBM device, and you can combine this stuff all back together to create this really, this truly kind of distributed hybrid quantum classical workflow. And that's something that kind of Penny Lane has been designed to do. Like the whole notion of a Q node within Penny Lane, which is kind of one of the main building blocks of Penny Lane Penny Lane's functionality is basically meant to represent like a quantum computational node in like a big kind of hybrid classical quantum quantum um, a quantum classical kind of computational I guess graph where you have like all these different computations being performed at each of the different nodes and they're all kind of coming together to um, output some kind of final result. Hmm. Okay, so you you've talked a bit about these Q nodes a couple times. You mentioned initially that there's it's sort of like a like a tape of all the different operations you want to run. Are are there other things you can do there? Maybe dive into that a little bit more. What do those look like? Yeah, sure. So um, Q nodes are kind of like I said, they're kind of like this quantum computational node in which the computations are being performed. Like it kind of bundles together the the device. It bundles together. Um, like all of the different operations that are being performed, like all the different gates, um, you know, what you want to measure, all that kind of stuff, it bundles it all together and it allows you to kind of execute it. Um, Interesting. The idea of the tape is something that's kind of new within Penny Lane. Um, and the idea is that within each Q node, there's this quantum tape. And basically it's, it's, it's exactly kind of what it sounds like. It's a, it's a quantum tape recorder. Um, and basically what happens is, is, Inside of a penny lane circuit, when you um, when you create a penny lane circuit, like on the front end, when the user creates a circuit and they kind of call all of these quantum operations, um, basically each of these operations gets queued um, inside this quantum tape. They kind of just get written down by this quantum tape recorder. And this quantum tape recorder basically just takes down all this information um, and then it can be, and then you can essentially take this tape, you can manipulate it, you can execute it, you can do all this different interesting stuff with it. And it's just a very, I think, elegant way to kind of keep track of all of the operations that are being performed within like some kind of quantum circuit. So that's what I mean when I say a quantum tape. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. So initially I had thought that a Q node would be like, uh, a section of a quantum circuit. But now what you're saying is that it almost sounds like 
the Q node itself defines the quantum circuit and what it's going to run on. And then this tape is a like a section of that quantum circuit. Like a the you know, this tape A refers to these specific gates on this quantum circuit. Does that does that sound right? Yeah. So like the Q node's like everything all together. Like the Q node is like the Q node would basically be like if I if I took like the device on which I'm running the circuit, I took the circuit itself, I took like some of this like extra information that kind of specifies how I want to run the circuit, and I put that all together, that would be kind of the Q node. The quantum tape is just the quantum operations that we want to execute on the device. Okay. Very cool. So We've talked a little bit about different devices, um, and I guess this also goes back to modularity. My, my question is, you say that you can define, well, I want this to run on this device and this to run on this device. Do you need to use different gates, different syntax for each of those different devices? Or is it the same penny lane, even though you're uh, doing it on photonics and superconducting and ion trap? Right. Yeah. So um, I guess it really depends on the model of, you know, computing um, that you're dealing with. So most of the hardware providers, I guess, right now, um, they, they're building kind of like um, qubit based quantum computers. So they're like discrete. Um, you have like these two level quantum systems and you're using them to perform computation. Um, whether that be, you know, trapped ions, whether that be, you know, these superconducting rings, whether they be, um, whether they be like some kind of photonic, but there are a bunch of different photonic approaches, I think. Um, Xanadu is some, doing something very interesting that I don't particularly understand, and I really don't want to say anything wrong. Um, so I'm not going to go into that. Um, there are people much smarter than me that are working on the hardware side of things. Um, but yeah, the, the, the idea is that all of these kind of different paradigms of computation are qubit based. And so we basically just want to use like qubit operations um, on all of these devices. And some of the devices, you know, natively support um, different operations, right? Like a lot of these, like the different devices will have like different, I guess, um, like um, sets of gates that they support. Um, and, you know, each of these gates that are supported on the different devices um, can be used um, if you put a bunch of them together to make, I guess, other quantum gates that might not necessarily be like directly supported on the device. Um, but the idea is that you kind of want to like take, I guess, your quantum circuit and you want to decompose it into the gates that are supported on the device on which you're running um, your circuit. So, you know, for instance, like on, on maybe like the ion Q device, maybe there's like a certain gate um, like, you know, like some kind of like ZZ or XX gate that isn't supported. However, um, that gate can be decomposed into gates that are supported on the IonQ device. So um, quantum software has to deal with that too, that issue of like decomposing circuits so that they can be run on these different devices. And um, that's not my, that's not really like my area of what I know. I'm not exactly sure how Penny Lane goes about doing that, um, hmm. but they definitely do in some regard. Um, so yeah, but I don't, again, I don't want to comment on anything that I don't really have a lot of knowledge in. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> fair enough. Um, so okay, to, to, to recap that, it sounds like what you're saying is that you can, at, from a user's standpoint, you can write the exact same code and run it on whichever of these different devices that you have a Penny Lane plugin for. Um, but then on the back end, it'll decompose that and transpile it for 
whatever specific gates are native to that device. Absolutely. Absolutely. That's exactly right. Okay. Super cool. Um, yeah. So this is all super awesome and it's been uh, great to learn about all this. If, if I wanted, or if somebody listening wanted to get started with Penny Lane, um, where would the best place to do that be? Right. Um, definitely check out the tutorials. The tutorials, so much care has gone into making these tutorials really good. Um, the Penny Lane website, it's pennylane.ai. Um, all of these educational resources are on the website and they're, they're fantastic. Um, like there are, you know, there, there are, um, tutorials that basically, you know, are good for beginners. They show you kind of how to get into Penny Lane, how to start using Penny Lane. Um, there are tutorials that kind of show, um, recent, uh, research being implemented in Penny Lane. There's like a community section on the Penny Lane website where essentially, um, people who use Penny Lane, they can submit their own kind of tutorials, um, um, to the Penny Lane website. Um, so there's like this tab where you can go see all of the different things that people have built using Penny Lane. Um, Penny Lane has like, there are a bunch of videos too that are um, also helpful for like learning quantum machine learning in Penny Lane. Um, and there are also just resources on the Penny Lane website as well, just for learning about quantum machine learning in general, not necessarily even Penny Lane, but just learning about some of the concepts, like some of the basic concepts in quantum computing, quantum optimization and quantum machine learning. So yeah, like I said, definitely check out the website. Um, it's, it's very good. It's very, very good. <laughs> awesome. are, are there any of those tutorials that uh, you've helped out with that we could point people to? Sure. Um, yeah. So <laughs> I don't want to necessarily um, promote my own work or you know, to my own horn, but um, I, uh, I helped to write the, uh, the intro to QAOA tutorial. Um, so that's basically, um, that's basically exactly as it sounds. It's kind of like an intro to the QAOA functionality that's built natively into Penny Lane. Um, so basically in that tutorial, um, I believe we're solving the, um, we're solving the minimum vertex cover problem, I believe, um, in that tutorial, which is kind of like a graph theory problem. Um, and we're using kind of, um, quantum optimization algorithm, the quantum approximate optimization algorithm to do that. Um, specifically we're using kind of the Penny Lane, um, QAOA features. Um, so that's kind of a fun tutorial. I had fun, um, helping to write that one. Um, some other ones as well that I kind of helped write are a few of the um, paper implementations. Um, so I helped I help to write the uh, VQT tutorial and the quantum graph recurrent neural network tutorial. Um, yeah, both of which are very interesting to look into. Um, they're based off of research that, that was done by, um, by um, Guillaume Verdon and um, some of the people at Google X. Um, and I think that they do very interesting work in quantum machine learning. Um, so shout out to them. Um, so I had, a, I had a really fun time um, implementing those algorithms in Penny Lane. Awesome. Um, okay, I don't I don't want to get too much into this because we're running a little bit running out of time. Um, but oh, yeah, no like explain explain like I'm five. What is the minimum vertex cover problem? Okay, um, let's see if I remember this. Um, so <laughs> pop quiz. Right, right, right. <laughs> so the minimum vertex cover problem, if I'm remembering correctly, is basically where you have a graph. So you have like some collection of vertices and edges connected. So you can kind of imagine um, a bunch of like dots and you have lines connecting them. The dots are the vertices and the, and the uh, lines are the edges. Um, and the idea is um, that you want to essentially um, mark each of, you want to essentially like color 
um, some subcollection of the nodes such that um, I believe it's every edge is adjacent to a colored node. Mm. So like if I had like a graph and I had a bunch of edges connecting the nodes in that graph and I basically went around with like a crayon or something and I like scribbled on like each of and like on some subcollection of the nodes, my goal is to scribble on the least number of nodes such that every single edge in the graph is adjacent to a node that is colored. Does that okay. make sense? Yeah. So if I'm understanding this correctly, like let's take a, a trivial case of a triangle. Right. Um, you would have to color in two nodes because if you only color in one, there's that, mm -hmm. there's that opposite edge that isn't touching any colored node. Precisely. Precisely. Okay. Super yes. cool. Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I will have links to those in the show notes for people to check out. Um, awesome. And this is this is sort of a, a fun question. Um, your a lot of your username on different places for uh, people to go check out is uh, Ooh, Lucaman ninety uh, nine, like on GitHub. Uh, where did that come from? Oh man, um, yeah. So this is, I guess, I don't know if this is slightly cringy, um, <laughs> but. So I, um, I guess I, so first of all, uh, Luca is my middle name. Um, okay. so Luca plus, I guess, man, I, I guess I'm a man. I don't know. I'm kind of more <laughs> of a boy than a man. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm still a kid, I guess, um, but I, I guess, so that's where Luca man came from. Um, and the nine, nine part. Um, so I think if I'm remembering correctly, so I came up with this Luca Man name way back when I was like a little kid, when I was like making usernames for websites. And I guess I never uh -huh. changed it um, just because it <laughs> kind of stuck. I don't know why. Um, maybe, that, like I said, that's kind of cringy, I guess. <laughs> the fact that I'm still using a username that I came up with when I was like in elementary school. Um, but I think that the nine came from the fact that I made this username when I was like nine years old. I'm pretty sure <laughs> that, okay. that, that that's because I was nine years old when I came up with this username. And I guess I added the extra nine just for, you know, style points or something. Um, I, I don't know. Um, but nice. yeah, I guess it, it, I guess it stuck around. I don't know why. Um, but yeah, it's, I've been using the same username since I was nine years old, I guess. So, <laughs> hey, me, me too, man. I think I've been using one Ethan Hansen on all my stuff since I was like in elementary school. So, oh, nice, nice. Yeah, um, I don't know. I guess that's the funny thing, you know. I guess growing up, well, I didn't grow up like in the advent of the internet. The internet was like around when I was yeah. like a little kid, but you know. I, I got to a certain age where I was like, all right, I'm making accounts on like every single website. <laughs> and it's right. like my, my, my username is Lucaman9 or 99 or whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Um, all right. So people can find you as Lucaman99. Uh, where should people go look if they want to find out more about you? Yeah. Um, so you can check out my website. Um, it's lucaman99.github.io. Um, because I have not invested in a domain name yet. <laughs> I'm still using the free one that GitHub gave me. Um, so that's that's where you can find the majority of my work. Um, I haven't updated my website in a little while. I need to do that um, in these coming weeks now that the semester is over, but um, I have a lot of my work um, posted there. Um, also, just check out all of the Xanadu stuff in the Penny Lane website, um, because some of my work's on there too, and also a lot of other very talented and intelligent people's work is there too. And a lot of the stuff that they write is a lot better than what I write. So definitely go check out Penny Lane. Um, and yeah, that, that's pretty much it, I guess. Okay. 
Uh, cool. And I, I did this a little bit out of order, um, but last two questions are, uh, first one, what is the biggest problem that you see in quantum computing today? Right. Um, definitely just scaling qubits, like dealing with noise, you know, like we've developed quantum algorithms um, to a very kind of, I think, advanced place. You know, we've done so much theory related to quantum algorithms and now the hardware needs to catch up. And it's really tough. Like scaling quantum computers is really, really tough. Um, and the reason for that, there, there are probably some very technical reasons for that, that I don't really understand. But from what I, from what I do understand from talking to people who have experience in this area of quantum computing, um, it seems like a very, very difficult problem. And I think that this is kind of the bottleneck, right? Like, you know, like, like I said, you know, the, the software is very much ahead of the hardware right now. We need the hardware to catch up if we want to do interesting things with quantum computers. Um, mm -hmm. So that is, that's definitely the biggest issue that I see currently within quantum computing. Yeah, definitely. That's the huge one. And so yeah. then last question, what is the biggest promise uh, from quantum computing over the next like five to 10 years? Oh man, that's tough. Um, that's very tough. It's, it's so difficult to answer that question because I think that I think that quantum computing is like a field that's developing like at an exponential rate right now. And it's honestly impossible to say where it's going to go, even in like the next decade. Um, I think that there's a ton of promise for coming up with some very smart ways um, to simulate quantum mechanical systems using quantum, using even like the limited qubits that we have right now, like in the NISC devices. Hmm. Um, so hopefully we'll come up with some really interesting techniques for doing that kind of stuff. Um, I think that, um, a lot of promise possibly lies, you know, in applications relating to like quantum chemistry and optimization. Again, right now we don't have enough qubits to do anything like non-trivial, unfortunately. Um, but I'm, I'm optimistic for the future. And I think that we're going to like get smarter the, the software is going to get smarter and fingers crossed. Like I said, the most important thing by a mile is that the hardware gets better. Um, that's like the, that's the number one problem. Um, but there's so many smart people working on it. Um, and I think, I think we're going to, I think we're going to do good things. I think they're going to do good things. And then the rest, <laughs> of us, the rest of us software people are going to, you know, jump at the opportunity to finally simulate things that are hopefully not as trivial as, <laughs> as what we've been simulating for the past little while. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, it's been awesome to talk to one of the smart people working on these problems. Uh, Jack, <laughs> thanks for coming on the show. Yeah, great talking to you, Ethan. Happy to do it. All right, I didn't get any questions or corrections from previous episodes, but I did have someone reach out to me on Twitter um, talking about a project that they had, and I guess they and their group had worked on, um, that's a tool for visualizing quantum decision diagrams, which is a an alternate way of... I guess, describing a calculation for quantum computing um, rather than the typical circuit um, diagram with, uh, you know, matrices. And you've got to keep track of these two to the n um, by, or sorry, yeah, n by n matrices, uh, which grows very, very quickly. These, um, in, in certain cases, there are some cases where this is less efficient, but in other cases, it's more efficient to do these quantum decision diagrams. I don't know anything about this. Um, I'm just sort of reporting what I heard. Um, I'd have to dig into this a bit more. It's not something that I had ever heard of before. Um, I, I've heard about decision diagrams in computer science just a, a little tiny bit, 
Um, but yeah, this is, this was interesting, um, to the person, if you're listening to this podcast, thanks for reaching out and telling, telling me about that. There's a link to that in the show notes. If you're interested in checking that out, maybe you can hit me up on minds or send me an email, maybe reach out to me via anchor voice message. If you want to teach me more about this, or if you have a question about a previous episode or a correction, something that you want to see me dive more into. Uh, let me know through one of those methods. Links to all of those, of course, in the show notes. As per our usual arrangement, links to all of the things that Jack and I talked about are in the show notes, um, plus the things that I just mentioned, like how to reach out to me. Um, if you would like to support me so I can make more and better episodes, please support me on Anchor. There's a link to that in the show notes as well. Or you can send me some crypto. Um, I've got addresses to those in the show notes. Or if you just want to share this with someone, um, this episode, if you enjoyed it, please share it with a friend, family member, someone who you think would be interesting. That helps get the word out. Um, and I, I don't like self-promoting, um, so if you can promote for me, that would be great. Thank you for listening, and I'll have the next episode out when I get to it.